legend, the creator of Monday Nitro, the innovator of the NWO, Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? You left out king of catering, but that's okay. The king of catering. I'm not mad at it. Listen, dude, I, uh, I, I don't know who's had a crazier week this week, but I feel like just your, your last 48 hours, it's gotta be amongst the craziest weeks in the business this week. Well, sort of, kind of, sort of. Yeah. We, uh, Mrs. B and I decided to come down to Florida early. We were going to hang around in Stanford till the end of the month and then come down. Uh, the original plan was to have Thanksgiving dinner with the Pritchards and all that. And I just got sick of hanging around in that corporate apartment. It was starting to drive me batshit. And on top of it, they were doing construction on the exterior of the building. So starting at about 8 o'clock in the morning, all you could hear was the beep, 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 beep of all the construction equipment out there, which I know you could hear on the audio portion of our podcast. So I just I got tired of it and said, fuck it. Let's load up the truck, grab the dog, and head to Florida. So uh, here we are, coming to you now from uh, lovely Clearwater Beach, Florida. Well, I'll tell you, there's um, our gift to you this week here on 83 Weeks, of course, is World War Three from 1995. It went down November 26th from the Norfolk Scope in Norfolk, Virginia. It does a sellout. 12,000 fans are there. 8,000 of chains paid a gate of about 113 grand. This is interesting because this is the very first World War III pay-per-view and concept like this. You guys would keep it going through 1998. And World War III, you know, I don't know that you could get away with that as a pay-per-view name now. It feels like it would be heavily criticized online, but maybe not. Tell me about the, the kernel of the idea, the nugget of the idea. Where did this come from? The, the typical battle royale had been around for a long time and War games had been an innovation a generation prior where there were two rings, but now we're going three rings. Chat me up. Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, a couple of things were going on at WCW at the time. We were expanding our pay-per-view schedule because that was really the only, it was the only immediate solution we had to generate more revenue. You know, we didn't, as we've discussed before, we didn't really have a licensing and merchandising uh, infrastructure in place. It would be a couple of years before that part of our business really began to to emerge and, 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 and matter. Um, you know, television ad sales was somewhat limited because we didn't have direct control of it. We were sharing a great deal of it with junior ad sales as an intercompany kind of an expense and allocation. Um, Ticket sales were starting to move a little bit. So really the only place we could go to really move the financial needle was to pay-per-views because that was all WCW revenue. We didn't have to share that with any of the other, you know, intercompany kind of allocation structure that a lot of our other revenue sources had like home video and international and things like that. So, you know, the desire to expand the pay-per-view schedule because we knew that would, you know, dramatically affect the bottom line. That's great. But the challenge becomes how do you make those pay-per-views feel unique? What makes them special? What makes them feel like something other than a Nitro or a Clash of the Champions in some cases? So we were kicking around ideas, you know, themes. What could we do that's different, that's unique, that we've never done before, that nobody else has ever done before? And that's where this started. I don't think the idea 
for three rings was necessarily my idea. I think that was just something that, you know, kind of evolved, you know, in the course of a you know couple of meetings during the previous weeks before we, you know, decided to do this. The idea, the, the idea to aim at World War Three was definitely my idea, but the idea to use it, you know, have a three ring battle royale, you know, I'm not sure who that came from. It could have come from anybody on the booking committee and just kind of grew from there. But that's, you know, that was the genesis of it. We needed another pay-per-view. We needed a pay-per-view that felt unique and had an identity of its own. Uh, and we wanted to do something that had never been done before. And this is what we came up with. So let's talk about that. I'm glad you mentioned we needed another pay-per-view because way back when November was, uh, was reserved for Starcade. you know, Thanksgiving tradition going back to 1983 and then there's a pivot from that in 89 Halloween havoc would happen in October, no pay-per-view in November Starcade would fall in December and that continues until 1995. And then you decide, Hey, we're going to introduce another pay-per-view, which makes sense from a revenue standpoint. At this point, the WWF is running in your house pay-per-views pretty regularly. That of course started in 1995, but they're doing it at a reduced price point in a two hour show. WCW never tried that. It was always the, the big show price on three hours, but I am fascinated with the idea that you wanted to create, or I guess you were tasked with creating another sort of WCW tradition. Halloween havoc was well-established at this point, super brawl to a lesser degree, certainly great American bash. We've been working on bash at the beach for a few years at this point. Of course, the staple of Starcade. Were you, and I know that this seems really obvious, but do you look to see what the WWF is doing and then try to sort of come up with a WCW, WCW version of that? I, I know that this isn't exactly the Royal Rumble, but, and, and they didn't create the battle royale that's been around for generations, but was this a way to say, you know what? We don't really have our answer to the Royal Rumble. Maybe we need a, a battle royale style. It really wasn't. I and and I wouldn't blame people for, you know, jumping to that conclusion or making that assumption. But that really wasn't it. It really was, you know, it, it was really God, we need another pay-per-view. What can we do that's different? What can we do that nobody else has done before? And, and that's really how it how it came to be. But no, to answer your question very specifically, no, we did not look at WWF and you know, try to figure out a way to have an answer for a version of, you know, one of their pay-per-views. That wasn't it at all. Well, you come up with, uh, this pay-per-view concept, world war three. This of course, the inaugural one in 95, it's three rings, 20 men in each ring, a total of 60 guys or double what's in the battle Royale for the WWF in January. And this time we're going to crown a new world heavyweight champion. Why are we doing that? Well, the title is vacant. As you may recall, at Halloween Havoc in October, Hulk Hogan lost to the Giant by DQ in the Giants' very first match in WCW, and Jimmy Hart turned on Hulk Hogan and then went with the Giant. And as you may recall, this happened just mere moments after uh, Hulk Hogan murdered the Giant on the side of the top of the building in Detroit, and then... Not only did the giant come back to life while he was dead, he hooked up with the Yeti. They made an evil plan to butt fuck Hulk Hogan live on pay-per-view. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know he was dead though? You say the giant was dead, but 
he he obviously wasn't dead. He's just a he's a fucking resilient. Yeah, not a scratch he's a t- on him. Tough giant. Pushed off the top of the building, not a fucking scratch on him. He's it's really remarkable. Tough so a bitch. The storyline behind this is that Jimmy Hart had signed a contract for Hulk Hogan, where if he lost by DQ, he would lose the title. And this, of course, is in his match against the Giant. But Nick Lambros, who is a real-life WCW attorney, comes out and says that the contract did say that, but WCW isn't going to recognize Giant as champion and instead is going to put the belt up for the Battle Royale winner here at World War Three. And this, you know, feels like once upon a time when Hulk Hogan was in another world title situation back at the end of 1991. There's some controversy at Survivor Series when The Undertaker would beat Hulk Hogan. Then Hulk Hogan would get a rematch on a very special Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view. Then Jack Tunney says, all right, too many shenanigans. We're going to hold the belts up. The Royal Rumble in 1992, whoever wins is your champ. Of course, Ric Flair won that. And now here we're going to use this, you know, much like Rick was brand new to the organization. The Macho Man is brand new to WCW. This is a way to sort of coronate the Macho Man. It feels like you're checking a lot of boxes here. We're creating a November pay-per-view. We're getting, uh, exposing a lot of talent. We're doing the battle Royal gimmick ahead of the WWF, which I know you said doesn't matter, but still that's a cool thing. And it's for the world title and a really cool way to introduce Hulk Hogan and maybe get the belt off of Hogan. Let it go to somebody else without making Hogan look weak in the process. The creative for this checks a lot of boxes. Who else would have been involved in the creative committee at this point? Mm, for sure, your father-in-law, Ric Flair, uh, Kevin Sullivan, myself, uh, Terry Taylor, probably Mike Graham. Not sure if or, or, uh, Nick, excuse me, Greg Anya was there by that point or not. Um, that would pretty much cover it. Now, of course, this does give an opportunity to showcase some new talent. Meltzer's going to say some of the names bandied about as being in the 60 man battle Royal are Tito Santana, Sergeant Slaughter, Rick Martel, and Iron Sheik, the 60 man three ring battle Royal with triangular ring setups. The first, (laughs) I can't believe this three different announcing teams calling the matches. The 60 man lineup was at first thought to include non WCW talent, but the lineup consisted of 51 wrestlers who had already appeared on WCW television as of late. With the remainder naturally subject to change being the Yeti, One Man Gang, the Super Assassins, which are Warlord and Barbarian, David Taylor, Bobby Walker, Pez Watley, and Mike Winter, and of course, Kensuke Sasaki. The remainder of the list goes from every major star in the promotion, plus guys used occasionally like Hawk and Scott Norton, down to the likes of Max Muscle, Bunkhouse Buck, Dick Slater, State Patrol, Barrio Brothers. Uh, Dave Sullivan, Scott and Steve Armstrong, Mark Starr, Chris Canyon, Hugh Morris, the three giants with Elegante not appearing will turn out to be Yeti giant and Hulk Hogan as the third giant or one man gang. If you prefer him to be a giant. So lots of old legends being discussed. Did you get very deep in the woods on that before you decided to just go deeper within your own roster? I mean, it does feel like as a cost cutting measure. You're not, if you're not going to really push them and they're not going to sell any tickets, what does it matter? Just throw some other guys in there who are already under on, on the payroll. Right. Well, yeah. And you know, as far as the list that, uh, <clears throat> Meltzer said, 
were, were banded about. And they may have, you know, we may have put calls into those guys and they may have been thrown out in terms of, you know, suggestions in the, in the booking committee and all that. So I'm not suggesting that they weren't. <clears throat> Some of those names I, I think are probably pretty unlikely that we really discuss them uh, in any seriousness, but uh, we'll, we'll just, I'll stipulate that they were bantied about just because I don't know for a fact that they weren't. Uh, but the idea was, you know, it was a 60 man battle Royal. We weren't necessarily trying to book 60 of the top stars available in the world. It was just the idea. It was a gimmick. It was, it was a hook. It was, wow, we've never seen a 60 man battle Royale. I wonder what that would look like. Um, I wish I would have asked myself that question a few more times after watching this pay-per-view. But uh, it, it, the whole idea—it was—I mean, look—it was—it was the biggest gimmick gimmick match at that point, and probably since then uh, that we could think of. And it, we just thought it might be something fun to try. So let's talk about Eligante here for a minute. I can't believe this is a real conversation, but a few weeks prior to this, Meltzer would write. Eligante with his new gimmick in the Dungeon of Doom as the Yeti and Ron Reese as T-Rex, who may become the babyface giant. They're going to have to put some amazing lifts in Paul White's boots, boots because he's pushed as being a giant, and he's the only one that appears to have any real charisma. But he's billed at 7'4", when he's really only 6'10 in real life. Ron Reese is a legit 7'2", and Gonzalez 7'6". Of course, we know... The deal with John Gonzalez does not happen. And who we see as the Yeti is in fact, Ron Reese. I had never heard of Ron Reese as T-Rex. Do you remember there being? Neither have I. Okay. So chat me. No, up. you know what? No, no way. Well, let's back up. Cause again, as so often is the case when, when we refer to Dave's reporting, there's just a whole lot of stuff in there. Um, I don't, I don't recall us talking to Jorge Gonzalez I think we may have reached out to him. I don't think there was any real plans of bringing him in. Uh, you know, he, he 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 was there. He was in WCW when I arrived uh, as an announcer in '91, I guess, uh, and left. He his heart wasn't in it. He didn't like being away from home. He didn't really like the business. There were a lot of just personal issues um, that made him want to go back to to where he came from. I, mean, I think he was from South America, if I'm not mistaken. I can't Argentina, remember. I thought. Argentina. Yeah, that, that could be right. I only, I, you know, he and I worked in WCW when I first got there for a very brief period of time before he left. And I, you know, I, I wish I had a better recall on this one, but I do remember that we may have reached out to him and talked to him about coming back, but he had absolutely no interest. He hated travel. You know, and I can understand that as big as he was traveling, it was just, it's a bitch, whether you're flying or driving, it's just, it was horrible for him and he just hated it and he didn't like being away from home. So there was no, I'm, I'm not really sure that Dave was right on that. I'm, again, can't remember it specifically enough to call bullshit, but I'm, I'm leaning towards it. I don't think there was any real conversation with him about coming back. May have reached out to him, but that's probably about it. Now, as far as T Rex goes, God, just a brief memory of that. Brief memory of that, but it was short lived. What, what can you tell us about? Uh, I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't remember that T Rex and WCW was even a thing. Uh, I had to do. I, I, I'm not sure that it is either, brother. I'm really not. You know, I. <laughs> I 
and maybe part of the reason I remember this is because we refer, we referred to Ron. Some, this is Ron's such a nice guy. I saw him at Starcast briefly. It was great to see him. Um, one of the nicest guys. Worked really hard at it. Really wanted him to succeed. But as tall as he was, and I think he was a legit seven four, whatever he was, he had the shortest arms for a big man that we could, and he looked like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He looked like a big giant dinosaur with little kind of short arms. And it was, I think it was more of a nickname than anything else. I don't, I don't recall him actually wrestling as, as that as a gimmick. Well, I, and by the, by, by the way, Paul White, I think is a legitimate seven or seven one. I don't know where Dave got six ten. I know, you know, for a guy like Dave, two inches is as inadequate as he obviously is, and as hard as he tries to make up for those inadequacies, I'm sure two inches seems like a lot to him. It's, I'm sure it is, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Paul's at least seven foot tall. By the way, shout out to Ron Reese. If you ever have an opportunity to uh, meet him in a meet and greet or some sort of event, go out of your way to do so. He's one of the most charismatic likable fun human beings i've met in all of my ventures in the wrestling business we booked him at starcast to come in as the yeti and he could not have been cooler and uh it was funny because i i'd even forgotten this but when sonny ono was in the back and came through to visit he said oh my gosh that i think i managed you less than anybody else in wcw and ron was like you were my manager and he's like yeah you were the super giant ninja don't you remember and ron was like yeah, if you say so, but yeah, he was the super giant ninja, which, uh, I think was like a one and done character, which is pretty funny, but great guy in real life. Go out of your way to see him. And he still looks great. Let's take a look at where business is. And I guess before we, we dig into the numbers here, we should remind everybody, cause you've talked about this a lot on the show. Your goal was to get WCW to turn just $1 a profit. If you could just find a way to dig out just $1 a profit. Cause when you get the reins, WCW has never been profitable. It's always been in the red ink and 1995 is going to be the year you finally achieve profitability. Were you adding this November pay-per-view just as like, Hey, here's our last opportunity to ring the cash register. Well, no, because truthfully, we had to plan for this pay-per-view probably six months in advance. So this was part of a, a strategy or a financial plan that was de- developed really in 1994 because you know when you when you when you budget for for example when we had to budget for 1995 uh, and we had to do that and turn that budget in probably sometime in August September of 94 so that it could get through the approval process of Turner Broadcasting and you know we would find out before the end of the year what our budget and, and everything was for the year of 1995. So we had already planned for this pay-per-view uh, at least six months, if not longer, in advance. So it wasn't, you know, not that you made it sound like a last-minute idea, but it, it was something that we planned for probably in 1994 when we knew we were going to expand our pay-per-view schedule. But it, it was, you know, part of the strategy to find as many different ways to, you know, through a combination of cutting costs and finding new revenue, uh, with the goal of, of creating profit for the first time. Your average attendance in November of 94 at live events is 1,380. You're up 99% by November of 95. You're at a 2,750 fans. 
Your average gate though, is only up 41% from $17,200 to $24,250. When you see that so many more people are coming nearly double, but the gate is only up 41%. Do you attribute that to the hardcore floor seat ringside seats, those pricing that pricing remaining the same. And then maybe you make some of your nosebleed seats more affordable or how do you sort of reconcile that in your brain where you're selling twice as many tickets, but revenue is not twice as much. Yeah. I mean, ticket pricing was something that we had to, to figure out and by 1995. We hadn't really gotten to that yet. We were still in such an early growth phase that we weren't really capitalizing on the increase in ticket sales like we we thought we should. Uh, that would come later. You know, we've talked about that in the past where we started, I think, in 96 and 97 for sure, started increasing, you know, the price of the tickets. But, you know, we were still, we again, in 1995, we were still happy as we did in this pay-per-view, you know, to get anywhere near that $100,000 ticket sales you know, threshold, which was so elusive for WCW up until this point that um, we we hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about increasing ticket sales. Like, you know, we could have, we should have, but again, all of those things are things that you have to budget for, plan for, you know, six months in advance, at least because ticket sales were, you know, marketing, promotion, advertising, all of the collaterals that go along with, you know, pub- you know, publicizing a pay-per-view and marketing a pay-per-view. That all has to be done so far in advance, or at least it did back then, um, that we we just hadn't gotten to that point yet. I hope that answered your question. Yeah. Let's take a look at the, where the ratings were, just as a frame of reference. The November 6th Raw gets a 26 it beats Nitro with just a two. The following week, the same thing. Nitro still at a two, Raw at a two six. We start to see a change though on November twentieth. Raw does a two point three, Nitro does a two point five. That of course is your go home episode of Nitro building towards World War Three. But the night after this pay per view, Nitro wins again. Same rating, two point five, Raw does a two point three. So you're fifty fifty on the month of November. Uh, you gotta be feeling pretty good. You know, you're still in the very early days of nitro and, uh, I've always been curious, like when you're seeing that you're going back and forth and I mean, I'm sure once upon a time, there were certain people within the organization who thought it was absolute crazy talk to go head to head with Vince. So even the occasional, uh, victor, occasional victory feels like a big deal, but to be pretty consistently here back and forth with them, are you feeling like that's a feather in your cap? Um, again, I didn't look at it like it's a feather in my cap, you know, to, to be fair and, and just completely transparent about it, you know, going head to head with the WWF wasn't my idea. That was Ted Turner's idea. Now I've had, had it been my idea. Had I, had I been the one that walked into Ted's office and said, Ted, damn it. The only way this company's going to be successful is if you let us go head to head with, you know, WWF H- had I been the guy pitching that to Ted and then had it been successful, I, I, I probably would have hurt myself, pat myself on the back for that one. But that wasn't the case. You know, it was Ted's idea, not my idea. So I was just grateful to have survived it. You know, I, I mean, I felt, again, I've said this so many times, and I don't want to go revisit it because people have heard this story. But, you know, when I walked out of Ted's office and whenever it was, I don't remember the month, but the, during the summer when Ted said, okay, I want you to go head to head with, 
Vince and WWF, I mean, I was, I, I felt like I had a gun in my mouth. It's like, okay, I'm either going to, you know, make this work or I'm going to die in the process of trying. It wasn't my idea, but it, well, I, I was grateful. But, you know, here, here's the other thing. This is where, and again, you know, we've talked about these, these moments, you know, when did, when did we know that we were on, you know, the verge of really becoming successful or, or maybe even eclipsing the WWF at the time, this, you know, November, 1995, we'd only been going head to head with them for what, about eight weeks, 10 weeks. And to, as you pointed out, not only were there, you know, people within WCW that thought, this was a bad, bad, bad idea. You know, go back and read what a lot of the, you know, dirt sheets were writing. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, they were convinced there was no way that Eric Bischoff and WCW was going to survive going head to head with with Vince McMahon. And I don't blame them, by the way. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing shade here. I probably would have said the same thing, you know, if I would have felt like I had that gun in my mouth. But to to within you know six or eight weeks, all of a sudden going head to you know it's one thing when we launched and they were off the air because of a dog show and you know we got a good number and you know but now we're going legitimate head to head with a show that had been on the air for a long time and you know the WWF was a what by that time probably a thirty year old company. Had, a, had such a long history and such a substantial footprint and loyal viewing audience, particularly in the northeast part of the United States where so much, especially back then, so much of your television rating came from, you know, that part of the country. Um, so for us to be able to even compete, to even be close within six or eight weeks was really exciting for us. And little did we know that it was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. You guys are going to take over and do huge things. And, um, on the way to get there, you're probably going to have to, uh, break a few eggs. You're going to make that omelet. And one of those eggs, unfortunately is Vader. We've done a whole episode on this in the past in the archives. You should go check it out. 83 weeks.com. But WCW officially form, informs the big man, Leon White, on October 11th that they're firing him. The official reason for the firing was that his 90-day review window had passed, and since he was medically unable to wrestle because of a shoulder injury, they're canceling the contract on that basis. So officially, the incident with Paul Orndorff was never specified, probably for legal reasons, since Orndorff, according to reports, egged on rather than quelled a messy situation. This is according, all according to the observer quote, this puts why in an interesting position since virtually every major promotion in the world would probably express some interest in him. Word we get is that he'll probably take a few months off to get his shoulder fixed and return to the ring in early 96. As far as with what group best speculation is based on the fact that he's a big money player it would either be new Japan where he got his start as a big time player. And they had plans for him to work a key match at the next Tokyo Dome or the WWF where he has never appeared and is desperately in need of a new monster heel to challenge for whomever will be champion after the next WrestleMania. Of course, you may recall that his shoulder injury happened at the cage match at Bash at the Beach with Hulk Hogan. Midway through the match, Vader's idea was to attempt a shooting star press that would miss 
and then Hogan would move and your foe would need to be near the corner. Anyway, Hogan's halfway across the ring and Vader goes up with the idea of doing it, but then realizes there's no way. And in compensating for that landed in a clumsy senton, which effectively destroyed his shoulder. He, he's going to keep working, but heavily medicated for the next two months until the whole Paul Orndorff thing comes to a head at which time WCW suspends him without pay. So this is all Meltzer's report. We've touched on it before. It is fascinating to think, you know, what if he would have stuck around? We know his, his, his run in the WWF started off hot and then was just a fucking train wreck. He had been such a top guy for so long with WCW when WCW was down, it would have been interesting to see how he could have fit in to the nitro era and to the, the era that's what, six months away from here, with the NWO in hindsight, do you ever think about the what ifs of Vader? No, I don't. And, and again, I want to be respectful here, uh, to his fans and, and most importantly to his family. And I'm going to be measured in what I say, because it doesn't, it doesn't serve any purpose to be negative. Uh, but I also kind of want to tell the story at least the way I saw it. Um, Dave Meltzer wasn't in the locker room and didn't witness the incident between Vader and, and Paul Orndorff. And by the way, neither did I. So, you know, to, for Dave to suggest that Paul egged it on, I think is, uh, you know, typical, but not necessarily accurate. When I got the call from Janie Engel, who was very close to Paul, we'll let it go at that. Uh, I was I was at a meeting. TV had already started at center stage. I was on my way to the building. Um, I, I had been at the office, so I was running about forty five minutes late or an hour late. And on my way, I got a call from Janie and. You know, she was concerned because she was afraid of how I was going to react. And she was legitimately concerned that I was going to fire Paul. Uh, so she and, and look, I would I would trust and have trusted Jenny Engel with my children's lives. They they call her Auntie Janie to this day. And when my kids were little and Laura and I would have to go out of town for business or whatever, uh, Janie would stay at the house and take care of the kids. So she was she was a part of the family and she was as honest or is as honest as the day is long. So when Janie called me and told me what happened and how it happened, if there's anybody in, in the industry, in the world for that matter, that I would believe at face value, even to this day, it would be Janie Engel. She's just, She's she's not no matter how she felt about Paul, no matter what the relationship was, she would tell me the truth. So when she laid out the scenario to me, I I took it at face value and I believed her. And I had also had my own experiences with Leon Vitter. Um, He was not an easy person to do business with. And not that he was unique in that respect. There were a lot of people that were difficult to do business with from time to time. Name one that wasn't, you know, especially one that was at the top where the pressure's, you know, more difficult and politics are more intense. The money is more meaningful. 
everything becomes much more uh, intense when you're at a level like Vader was or Ric Flair was or, you know, Sting was or Hogan. You, you any Anybody that's, you know, Macho Man, you name anybody that's been at the very top of the sport um, or this business, I should say, um, they all have their moments. Steve Austin. You know, it's. I think you'd have a hard time finding anybody that was a power player at that level who wasn't a pain in the ass from time to time. Leon probably, maybe a little more so than some of the aforementioned top talent. Uh, he was moody. He was a very emotional guy. He could be the sweetest, kindest, most gentle teddy bear of a human being you'd ever met one minute and 20 minutes later it, it was like he was possessed you know by somebody else he was a difficult guy to do business with so between my own experiences with him and the story as it was relayed to me by Janie and others by the way not just Janie it was substantiated by other people um, I, I think Dave's reporting once again was completely wrong um, I'm sure somebody fed him something and he just ran with it because that's what he did and still does to this day. But it wasn't, it wasn't accurate. Paul didn't egg him on. Paul didn't take any shit from him. Um, again, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But as the story was relayed to me, um, I, I think it was Vader who was trying to bully Paul and Paul wouldn't back down. And by the way, Paul was, you know, had nerve damage to one arm. He was wearing a pair of flip-flops. Um, he wasn't in the best of health. But Paul Warndorf, you know, Paul Warndorf was a man's man. He he wasn't going to back down from anybody, including Leon White, and didn't. And, you know, the rest is history. So, yeah, we, we did let him go. Um I, I kind of felt like it just wasn't going to be a fit, you know, and I did talk to Leon afterwards. We met in Minneapolis uh, in, I think, in September 1995. Um, we had met with Leon and, and, and I talked to him and I just let him know. It's just, it's just the chemistry isn't there. It's just wasn't going to work. That was the end of it. But no, I never thought about it. I never – look, I, I – I tr- and I wasn't as mature then, obviously, as, as I am now. I didn't have the experience under my belt then uh, like I do now. But even then, it was like, you know, once you make a decision, you make a decision and you move on. And don't look back. You, you, you know, don't regret it. Don't worry about it. Don't think what if or what could have been. It's just, you know, it's just not my nature. And it, it wasn't even back then. So now once it, once a decision was made and – yeah, I, I probably was even more convinced I was right when Leon went to WWF and kind of crashed and burned there as well. Not because he wasn't a talented guy. I just think emotionally um, he was, for whatever reason, he was kind of at his wit's end. All right, back to World War Three. On our march here, Meltzer's going to be critical of the creative and the way you guys were filming TV. Of course, Worldwide is going to air over the weekend. And in the voiceovers, it's going to say the winner of the battle Royal gets a title shot. So obviously, you know, we didn't know at the time of filming that and putting it together, uh, that the title is going to be vacant. I know you were taping that way in advance, 
but was there never any sort of continuity person on staff in WCW to make sure that type of stuff didn't happen? You couldn't really do it. You know, well, sure. We were all, you know, cognizant of continuity and, and we, we did our best, but when you shoot your shit 13 weeks in advance, things happen, you know, between the time you start shooting that and the, and, and the time it airs. And yeah, it was, it, it was, you know, there's no excuse for it. It, it happened. There was no, no way to go back and fix it realistically. Uh, it just happened, but it didn't happen necessarily because there was nobody paying attention. It happened because, you know, we made a decision again, cost cutting to shoot our stuff, you know, 13 weeks in advance at Disney MGM studios. And, by the time you get to the you know the end of that 13 week cycle whether it's injuries whether it's better ideas whether it's a new opportunity sometimes things change and it was you know that was the the risk and reward of shooting 13 weeks in advance I'm fascinated by the um the statement you said you know you couldn't really do it because it feels like and I know that it's a different animal, but Vince McMahon would have guys come in and just voice, voice stuff over again to the point that, you know, Taz has talked about, he would back in the SmackDown taped era, they would call it live and then they would go to the studio and do it again. And, and sometimes they would even wind up doing the commentary live for the third or fourth time to the point that Bruce has talked about with Vince, it's much better just to do it live you guys are a television, you're owned by a television station. It feels like it would have been even easier for you guys to do some wraparounds or new voiceovers or whatever to compensate for any of that. Was that just not something on your purview and Tony Schiavone, who maybe was in charge of it, just didn't give a shit. No, that's not the case at all. It, it, it was more of a budgetary issue. Keep in mind, we were under, when I took over the company, um, it, it was made clear to me that we either turn this thing around and make a profit or it's going to go away. We were in a cost-cutting frame of mind for the longest period of time. We were, again, two things. Cut costs as much as we possibly could everywhere we could and increase revenue is, is everywhere that we could as much as we could. That was the that was the battle that we were in constantly. And it was, you know, Vince McMahon at that time, first of all, he only had himself to answer to. He was a privately held company. He could call his own shots. I didn't have that luxury. I, I, I worked for a publicly held corporation who um, had a mandate, and that mandate was passed down to me that either this company turns a profit or it goes away. And yeah, it could have been done and we could have done some of the things that Vince, Man, Vince McMahon had the luxury of doing because he decided to do it. But we didn't have that luxury. We didn't have the budget to do it. And it sounds like it's really easy to just, you know, fly some guys in and make it look like you're at Disney MGM Studios and do wraparounds and all that stuff sounds really easy, but it comes with a lot of expense and we just couldn't do it. Let's keep it going here. Let's talk about uh, the creative for how we're going to book the world war three match. Meltzer's freestyling that the person who can probably draw the most money against Hogan at this point on pay-per-view is the giant who just helped butt fuck him into oblivion the month prior, but he <laughs> freestyles that it's probably going to end up being Randy Savage or sting. 
but he thinks Sting is less likely because he's been involved in a U.S. title program. But an angle was shot on November 6th in Jacksonville where Lex Luger, quote unquote, injured Randy Savage's bad arm. In reality, he's got a legit tricep tear. And the original plan, according to the observer, was that he was going to have surgery to repair the injury. That's a similar injury that was suffered by Steve Austin that would have kept him out of action for three to four months. But the last report Meltzer received was that Randy had opted out of the surgery. Do you remember having a conversation about this injury, about how close Macho Man came to not being able to make World War Three? Yeah, it was a big issue for Randy. Um, you know, I don't. I don't recall a lot of detail other than Randy was conflicted. He wanted to have the surgery. His doctor told him to have the surgery. I think Randy, you know, this is me trying, this is me projecting a little bit and guessing what was going through Randy's mind because we did talk about it a little bit. My sense was things were heating up. Randy was feeling really good about WCW. Randy was, I don't want to, insecure wouldn't have been the right word. But I think like a lot of guys, and and particularly somebody as intense as Randy, um, they just don't want to be out of the loop for three or four months. They just didn't want to do it. I think that's why so many guys worked hurt for so long. You know, the the way they came up in the business, particularly guys like Randy and Ric Flair and, you know, others that have been, you know, Roddy Piper and, you know, that era. You know, you go away for three or four months, that could be the end of your career. And they just didn't want to let go of that top spot. And I think that was probably what drove Randy more than anything. We should mention, we, we talked about sting being involved in a U.S. title situation. Kensuke Sasuke, uh, became the first Japanese born wrestler to win the United States title. When he beat sting for the title, he hit the Northern lights bomb move on sting twice. And that gets the pin. This is a combined WCW new Japan show that drew 7,500 fans at sumo hall. And so we see a title switch here. Uh, the, the first Japanese American to win that belt, November 13th. Talk to us a little bit about how the relationship was going, because obviously you're comfortable enough at this point to, uh, feel like it's, it's cool to put the belt on a new Japan roster member instead of a WCW guy. He had no problem doing that at all. By, by 1995, the relationship with, and Noki, and, and in my case, even more so, um, Masa Saido, who is really my, my liaison there, along with Brad Riggins, uh, was so solid. Um, literally, we, we were doing business, you know, over a handshake and some sushi, as opposed to contracts. It, it just, there was no doubt in my mind that we had a good working, working relationship at that point, and it just, uh, it, it was a great, it was a great time, you know. I, I look back, especially as much time as I've been spending with Sonny lately, you know, I look back and it's like one of those things I, I realize now that I wish I would have known then, you know, you, I didn't, I, I love the relationship with New Japan. I knew it was great. I enjoyed it. But man, looking back at it now, what a fantastic time that was. And it was, you know, it was the kind of thing that'll probably never happen again. Uh, just the the level of trust and the business that we did back and forth, the things that we accomplished, um, the impact that I think it had on the industry that we're still seeing today. Um, it was it was a great time. I wish I would have appreciated it a little bit more then, uh, but 
Yeah. I guess that's a, the, the advantage of 2020 hindsight. And what a loaded card this is, you know, Kanemoto, Otani, um, Nagata, Liger, Booker T's here. Uh, Masa Chono's there, Bobby Eaton, uh, your boy Saito, uh, Johnny B. Bad, Choshu, the Nasty Boys, Arn Anderson, the Giant, Hashimoto, Ric Flair, Tenzan, uh, Mudo, the former Muda, Steven Regal, just so much talent on this. It's it's a legit super card. And and surprisingly, you know, this is an era where just a few years prior to this. Nobody wanted to lose to anybody. Everything was count outs or DQs or whatever. Not here, man. It's one clean finish after another. Yeah, it was, you know, and going back and having watched this, you know, we, we needed to, to do that. When you have all that action going on, if you, we wouldn't have had finishes like that, if it wouldn't have been very easy for the audience to see what was happening and pay attention to who was beating who and that type of thing, it would have been a, a real clusterfuck. But it was, it, it was, you know, it was the biggest gimmick of all gimmick matches. And you know how I feel about gimmick matches, but it was still, I think, monumental in many, many, in many ways. And especially if, again, go back in time, we were really trying to establish WCW as kind of the leader in, in, in professional wrestling around the world. We wanted to create the perception and the reality, not just the perception, but the reality that, you know, there was more top international talent in WCW than anywhere else in the world. And this, you know, was another event that helped us do that. It absolutely did. Uh, let's keep it moving and let's talk about something else that people thought they'd never see. Probably. I mean, I think this is the first time ever Hulk Hogan and sting happens on November 20th. Of course, a few years later, they're going to blow everything up. Starcade 97. Uh, but these guys having a match here, I mean, it's kind of cool because you never for years and years, this is the franchise WCW guy slash NWA guy and the franchise WWF guy. And now it's happening in two perennial good guys, but here it is a little different because Hogan comes out dressed in all black and is playing heel to the point that he's booed out of the Macon Coliseum. The match goes nine minutes and 32 seconds with Hogan powering out of sting scorpion, making it Superman come back. He's going to miss the leg drop selling a hamstring injury and he gets put in the scorpion. And just when it appears that he's going to submit as he's screaming on camera and he just can't take the pain. The Dungeon of Doom all run out and attack both men. This is a no contest decision here. Hogan and Sting are going to combine for the save until the giant runs in. And then he chokeslams both guys simultaneously until magically Randy Savage comes in and hits the giant with a chair shot. Of course, giant doesn't sell that, but then Hogan and Sting combined and they knock the giant out of the ring. This is such a big moment, Sting and Hulk Hogan, but it's happening when, when Hogan is you know, in a bit of a um, crossroads with his character. So he's in all black here, being betrayed by Jimmy Hart, Brother Bruda. It's had a rough year here. Chat me up. Hogan Sting in hindsight, should that have been safe for a pay per view? Mm, you know, I mean, you could argue that. I. There's always the. It's math, right? And, and the math that I was dealing with back then was 
the hotter I make my television, the more money I make off of pay-per-view. And then then you always come to that point where you say, well, should we hold that back for pay-per-view or should we give just enough of it away on television without giving it all away? Give just enough of it away on television that that you can save something for pay-per-view. And that was always, you know, sometimes we we did it really, really well and sometimes we didn't. But, you know, I've never, looking back, you know, and people could be as critical of, of my decisions as they choose to be back at this time, but you can't take away the success that we had and the strategy that I used and, and, and the way we did it, which by the way, nobody else will ever, ever do again. And, and I, I'm not sure that I would have changed anything. It's, it's like, you know, Oh, Hogan and Goldberg, you know, on, 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 on nitro should have that. If they would have saved that per pay-per-view WCW would still be around. It's such horseshit. I mean, it's just, it's just naivete. It's people who don't know anything about the business of the, the wrestling business talking. They're fans and they can have a passionate opinion and I get all that. But, you know, when you go back and you look at these situations and say, God, should you say that for pay-per-view? I don't think so. Because what we did do allowed us to dominate the ratings for 83 straight weeks. Overall, probably 88 or 90 straight or 90 weeks in total. So I, I, I can't go back and say, God, I wish I would have done that different. I think it kind of worked out. I like that you said uh, in, in, in particular because we're – and I didn't mean to cut you out, brother – but because we're a television company. First and foremost, you know, the mission was, yeah, we had to generate revenue and we were, you know, really had the pressure on us to to turn a profit. But it, even more than that, there was pressure on us to, to deliver ratings. Let's talk about, you know, this, this idea that we've got this super pay-per-view level match, Hulk Hogan and Sting, but it's not on pay-per-view, it's on Nitro. And that is in fact, what winds up winning the ratings war. We just talked about it earlier. We said that the WWF won the first two weeks, but you guys won the 20th and the 27th. Well, Hogan sting your go home episode to build to this pay-per-view is the 20th and it gets the win. And by the way, we should mention just to add a little context. That's the night after the survivor series pay-per-view where Bret Hart and diesel had a world title match. That was just phenomenal. They had a great table bump in that people still talk about that as being one of diesel's best matches. So you guys probably felt like we need to bring our a game here because everybody's going to be watching to see what they're doing the night after their big pay-per-view survivor series. And we need the audience to help sell our pay-per-view Hogan sting in the context of that makes sense. And you win the night. So it's hard to argue in hindsight that it wasn't a big deal. Uh, I do want to mention somebody we haven't talked a ton about here on the show, but I've always thought really added something extra to WCW. Meltzer would report. It looks as though Michael buffer won't be doing UFC events any longer. WCW gave him an ultimatum because they felt UFC was competition. And since WCW runs more major shows than UFC, most likely he would choose that one, given that it gives him the most dates, Michael buffer. And a lot of people have been critical of Eric spending money here or there. As you know, the whole ATM Eric bullshit narrative, which by the way, you can check out some of our fun shirts that debunk all of that uh, right now over at 83weeks.com or ericbischoff.com. Chat me up though. Michael Buffer is part of WCW. I felt like, you know, him coming out and introducing the main event gave it a big fight feel. It made it feel special. You obviously felt the same. 
Do you remember giving an ultimatum to the, for him about his UFC dates? This is the first time I'd heard that. It's because it didn't happen. Okay. Imagine that. <laughs> it just, it just didn't happen. Okay. So since it didn't happen, talk to me a little bit about what you thought the value he brought was and, and why you felt like he was important to WCW's presentation. Well, I, I mean, the obvious for me back then was, you know, every time there was a big fight, you know, when it came to boxing, uh, whether it was Tyson, Holyfield, whoever it was, um, Michael Buffer was there for the main event. He was the established big fight, you know, voice of the voice and image of the big fight when it came to boxing. And, you know, WCW needed a couple things. Number one, we needed credibility. Again, go back in time, you know, 94, 95, we were struggling to become, you know, something other than a distant number two. Uh, we wanted to do as many things as we could to to, to differentiate ourselves uh, ourselves from WWF. Um, going back to that list that I made coming out of Ted's office when I found out you know found out that I had to do go head to head with with um, Monday Night Raw, I made a list of everything I could do to be exact you know as, as different as I could possibly be from WWF, and being able to bring in a guy like Michael Buffer who everybody recognized and not just the audience. Again, you know, I'm going to go back to something I've said before, but it's worth you know restating again. Not everything that I did with uh, even on camera for WCW was necessarily for the audience's benefit. It was for the pay-per-view provider's benefit. It was so that we would get additional marketing support over and above what we traditionally got from pay-per-view companies like DirecTV and, and Dish and so forth. And by bringing in a guy like Michael Buffer, who obviously the pay-per-view platforms, pay-per-view companies certainly knew who he was because of you know the hundreds of millions of dollars that were generated by boxing where, you know, Michael Buffer was the centerpiece, the announcer for the main event. All that did was help us in our relationships with pay-per-view providers. So it was as much of a, a marketing move for us, you know, a business to business marketing move as it was to establish to our audience that we were something bigger, something different, and uh, perhaps in some cases a little classier than WWF. And I think Michael brought all that to the table. You could argue the fact that, you know, he wasn't a wrestling guy and sometimes he messed up, you know, some of his ring entrances and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay, sure. But at the end of the day, you know, as far as the pay-per-view companies that we were doing business with were concerned, as far as the the 90% of the audience that just wasn't so obsessed you know, with 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 the business, the way some of the you know ten percenters were, or probably two percenters were, um, it was a very effective move. You know, it was one of the things I think that helped us, you know, get to the point where we were consistently outperforming the the WWF. And not only that, that was always a part of it, obviously, because you're fighting for market share. That's really what it was all about. If there's if there's a hundred dollars to be made in the wrestling industry, and if in 1993 and 1994 WWF was making 80 of those dollars and we were making 20, I wanted to do everything I could do so that we were making 60 of those dollars and they were making 40. That was the goal. And bringing in guys like Michael Buffer and doing some of the other you know kind of unconventional, out of the box, uh, radical things that we did were all designed to help us get there and, and eventually it did 
I cannot wait to talk about the open of this pay-per-view. You watched it back for the first time in a long time. And the show opens, this is all directly from the observer. The show opened with one of the weirdest interviews, probably in wrestling history. Hulk Hogan, Sting and Savage came out. First Hogan dumped his black wrestling attire into a burning garbage can. Then he went off on a tangent about quote unquote rag sheets, which is a term. Those in the business unfamiliar with how the real world operates refer to newsletters such as this. Hogan threw a tantrum about a report that said the giant was going to win the battle Royal and how they were wrong, which pretty well tipped off everyone. The giant wasn't going to win. And he also reported that, uh, or he said it was reported that Savage wouldn't be in the show because of an arm injury. He then said that the Savage arm injury was a total swerve on everyone, including the wrestlers in the dressing room and the Savage's arm was fine. Even weirder was if the injury wasn't real, the major storyline of the show is that Savage had an arm injury and the announcers never acknowledged Hogan's saying Savage's arm was fine. He then threw the quote unquote rag sheet in the same burning garbage can saying, observe this. Yes. He did this while throwing the observer in the trash. He called it a dinosaur and said the internet's the real story and Meltzer would continue. I suspect as his popularity and drawing power continue to dwindle, he'll get more bitter. Since it appears to be directed at me, I took it as a tremendous compliment, but good Lord, what a moment. And when I, I got to tell you, when I first picked this pay-per-view out, I thought about two things, the main event and the opening of this show, when you fired it up on the WWE network this week, did you even remember that that was on this show until you saw it? No, I didn't, but it's really funny how, you know, Dave talks about, well, let's number one, let's unpackage just a little bit. So Dave predicted in 1995 that his drawing power was going to diminish even more and Hulk was going to go on to become even more bitter. What what eventually happened? Yeah, he popped off and became the hottest star in the business. Yeah, imagine that. Once again, Dave, Dave Meltzer just calling it right down the middle. And what's even funnier is listening to Dave talk about somebody being bitter. I mean, this is a guy that's, you know, I, I guess he's in some kind of male menopause, you know, needs to take a couple of might off because the first time somebody points out the things that he said that were inaccurate or lies or misleading or, you know, any number of other things that he does on a weekly basis, he blocks people. He gets bitter as hell. He has meltdowns. I mean, this talk about bitter. Really, really, Dave. Get a, get a fistful of might all. Get over yourself. It'll all be okay. That being said, this was one horrific promo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm like, Eric, come on. This sucks. This was way, way out of left field. No, but this is okay. You know, both things can be true, right? Sure. I agree. Both things can be true. It's not binary. You don't have to pick one or the other. They're both true. This this was hor- this was a horrific promo, and, and Dave is a menopausal bitch. Both things are true. When you watch this back for the first time in a long time, do you wish you had this one to do over again? Oh God. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there were so many things. I mean, look, it was what it was. Context is king, all of that, you know, stuff we say all the time, but some of the promos, you know, and not just this one. I mean, this one was really bad, but there were others that were in their own ways is as bad or maybe even worse. 
The Kimberly and the Kimberly and and DDP interview was, uh, oh, we'll and maybe it's you know because uh, you know I love DDP. He's a friend of mine, and you know we have such a long history and all that. And maybe it's because he's a friend of mine that I look back and I see this and go, "Oh, brother, why couldn't we have fixed that?" Uh, you kind of hate to see people you know have to live with those kind of promos, but yeah, there was there was a lot of tough stuff to look at. I'll tell you, if you're going to go back and watch one thing on this show, normally I recommend a match and there are good matches on here, but dude, this opening promo with Hulk Hogan and then the DDP promo, those are the world beaters. You just got to see that. This is really once in a lifetime type stuff. I mean, the observer on a pay-per-view being thrown into fire and he threw away his black ring gear. Let's talk about our first match and every WCW pay-per-view in history johnny b bad was the opening match and this is no exception he's going to retain the tv title pinning diamond dallas page in 12 minutes and 35 seconds but in a stipulation you probably couldn't do today he also won the diamond doll a very good opener is what Meltzer would say uh he gave it three and a half stars uh, you know this is this is before ddp was cool this is before he really hit his stride in 1997 but good lord his work is a lot better than it was just a year prior I don't, you know, I'm going to disagree with you. I think you could do this storyline today. I mean, look what they're doing with Lana and Rusev and Bobby Lashley. I mean, come on. That's, I mean, really? I think you, I think you can pull this off today. Well, here's what I, I mean. mean. Here's he, what I mean, though. How, how well is that storyline being received? <laughs> By who? People, I mean, people I mean, should know. Hey. You like that? It's not whether I like it or don't like it, just but just because the internet is all fired up about it doesn't mean the other ninety-five percent of the viewing audience isn't cool with it. Come on, dude. You can't you can't judge everything by what the internet no, says no. or a shit sheet. I mean, sorry, dirt sheet like Meltzer says. You just can't. You've got to recognize that while you may be passionate, while you may be obsessive compulsive and live on the internet and believe everything that you read and oh, you know, believe everything that's in a dirt sheet and everybody agrees with that, you're in a bubble. You're in a tiny little bubble, tiny little bubble, not a big bubble, a tiny little bubble. And just because the people in that tiny little bubble feel that way doesn't mean that 98% of the rest of the people watching feel the same way. Just just a thought. Dude, a pregnancy angle. You don't want to see that. Eh. Eh, let's see how it turns out. All right, let's talk about something we can agree on here. Diamond Dallas Page and Johnny B. Bad had a match that was better than expectations, especially after that horrible promo. Can we agree? Yeah, but to your point, um, it's interesting when you look at Paige here in this match. And, and Paige, if you're listening to this, I'm not being critical. Come on. I'm actually putting you over. Don't react to what I'm about to say. <laughs> <laughs> but you just look sloppy here. And, and, and it, it looks just... God, I don't know how to describe it. I was really, you know, because I watched this one very closely out for obvious reasons. But I was trying to figure out a way to articulate the difference between Paige here in 1995 and 96 and 97. The difference is night and day. And I think a, a couple of the things that I picked up on in watching this match is, number one, if you're going to go back and watch this, and I encourage you to do it on WWENetwork.com, is... 
look at the way he carries his head. And I know this sounds funny or, or maybe like a bizarre critique, but when, when, especially when you got a big head of hair like that, you know, it kind of looks like Sammy Hagar anyway. And when your head's down, when you're always your, – your, your face is almost always looking down at the mat. The hair is hanging in front of your face. You don't see any facial expressions. When you sell, you need to sell with your head up so the camera can see you, so the camera can read your eyes, so the camera can read your anger, so the camera can read your intensity. That's what creates emotion, intensity, and anger, and drama, and whatever it is you're trying to create or whatever it is you're trying to sell. If the audience can't see it at ringside, and if the audience can't see it at home because the camera can't pick it up, you're missing 75% of your opportunity. And if you watch this whole match, throughout this match, he's, he's kind of almost like slouching. I'm talking about Paige. Even when he's on offense, he's kind of like slouching, and it's sloppy, and his head is down. He's selling down. Even even if he's getting a comeback, his head is down, and you can't see his face. There's no emotion in him. That's one thing I noticed, and it was consistent throughout the entire match. The other thing that I, I noticed, it, I mean, this is a lot more obvious. You don't have to be an expert to pick up on this, but it, his timing wasn't there. If you if you watch this match, you know, watch him 12 months later, 18 months later in particular, and look at the difference between his timing and the crispness of everything he does. 96, 97, 98. He became so crisp, and his timing was so good. And when he was selling, he was selling up, meaning his face. He's selling with his head up. He was selling with his emotions so people could feel the way he was feeling in the ring. The difference between 95 and 96 and 95 and 97 is just they're like two different people. And really, if you're a, you know, if you're an up-and-coming you know, wrestler, even if you're an, if you think you're an established wrestler, go look at this and just look at those nuances and ask yourself if at times you're not kind of guilty of the same thing, because this was, this is textbook in, in, in this is textbook green guy versus experienced guy. Look at page, you know, a year later, 18 months later, and it's like he gained five years of experience during that 12 month or 18 month period. And, and it's a rematch. You know, we, we said this was a match that we saw a lot. We saw it at Halloween havoc and considering that, you know, diamond Dallas page would lose the TV title at Halloween havoc. And here's the return. And this time the stakes are built versus managerial services, of diamond doll. It feels like, eh, this could just be okay. I really dug it though. I know you were critical of it, but it is fun to sort of watch the progression of diamond Dallas page. Uh, next up, we've got Mean Gene plugging the WCW hotline, and he's going to mention that the WWF steroid scandal isn't o- isn't over, which is kind of funny given who all's on this show. On the September sixteenth episode, oh, um, take a shot or two, uh, don't you? Just saying. I, and here's the deal: I'm for it. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I know that I'm in the minority, but like. I understand why you shouldn't take performance enhancing drugs when you're in the UFC or you're boxing and like, I'm really going to punch you in the face and cause harm to you. I get why we should level that, but this is a yes. And there is an athletic piece of this, but this is performance art. Like 
I don't know that there are PED, PED testing dudes on, on Broadway. So my attitude towards, you know, steroid testing and wrestling has always been a little different. And I, I get that I'm going to get hate tweets, send them on. Uh, hey, Hey, it's Connor. You know what? You know what though? You, you're, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think when people, and I know we're going way off track here, but when, when it's just so funny, isn't it? How, when it's convenient or bolster someone's argument, people draw parallels between sports and professional wrestling. But then at the same time, they'll completely disconnect the two. Right. If they, they need to. Sports entertainment, professional wrestling, and I'm not advocating, you know, people do anything illegal. That's not my point here. Yeah. But this is performance art. And if you think there are not actresses, or excuse me, actors and actresses who don't take advantage of performance-enhancing opportunities to get ready for movies and to become big stars, go kid yourself somewhere else. But that's, and I'm fine with that too. They're actors and actresses. It's a personal choice, you know, and, and. You know, the idea that people sort of put their head in the sand on that. It's like Sylvester Stallone has had run-ins anyway, just Google it. I'm just telling you there, it's not a big deal in the rest of the entertainment world, but for some reason in wrestling, and I get the whole Zahorian thing. And people thought that maybe Vince was, was a peddler and a pusher. And in hindsight, we realized that was not the case. Guys made a choice and maybe they felt pressure to make that choice, but those same pressures exist everywhere else where and entertainment people are trying to get to a certain look, but it's not something where, you know, it's not like the UFC where if you and I are going to start punching each other in the fucking head, then yeah, that we should probably be on a level playing field there. I don't think that's unrealistic to differentiate. We digress. Let's keep going. Let's talk about what you really want to talk about. And that's Jim Duggan, and big Bubba Rogers. I know they're personal favorites of yours. And on the September 16th episode of Saturday night, Duggan cost Big Bubba a match against Evad Sullivan by putting Ralph the Rabbit in the ring, which led to <laughs> Rogers leaving the match due to his allergies from rabbits. <laughs> this is real. This is real. This led to a match between the two on the September 30th episode of Saturday Night. <laughs> where, <laughs> where Rogers defeated Duggan by hitting him with a taped fist. While Duggan was distracted by VK Wall Street. And then Duggan defeated Rogers in a rematch the following week on Saturday night. And on the November 11th episode of Saturday night, it was announced that Duggan and Rogers are going to square off in a tape fist match. And Duggan is going to visit Ireland to check out his ancestors in preparation for his match. Because I know if I had to fight Big Bubba. I would fly to Ireland on the November 20th episode of nitro Duggan would cost Rogers his match against Hawk by tripping Rogers from the outside as Rogers was about to use the tape fist on Hawk, but instead landed face first on the tape fist dude. Realistically, did you guys book this whole Ralph the rabbit thing with allergies just so Bobby Heenan could have some fun <laughs> cartoon style about hunting wabbit? Tell me I couldn't book a WrestleMania. Jesus. <laughs> I, when I when I was getting ready. First of, all, I, first of all, I didn't book this, right? I didn't write this shit. 
I didn't. I had nothing to do with this. And I'm not saying that because it's ridiculous. I'm saying it because it was true. By the way, this idea, I don't care what you say, is straight out of catering. And Ryan, if you're listening to this, we need a t-shirt that instead of straight out of Compton, it says straight out of catering. And we should get that up over at ericbischoff.com. But continue. Take me down the rabbit hole, pardon the pun. How in the fuck do we get to Big Bubba Rogers and Jim Duggan in a tape fist match based on rabbit allergies? I think there was a massively good weed in a bottle of, in a bottle of GHB involved. Oh. Had to be. Had to be. That's the only thing I can think of. But you, before we go too far and have too much fun with this, because there's nowhere else to go with it but having fun with it. Sure. A couple things about Big Bubba. He was a good friend. Absolutely. He really was. And and I have I have a picture uh of myself, Garrett, my son, um, Rick Steiner and Bubba. Where we took Garrett out on a deer hunt in Georgia and Garrett got his first deer. And that was that's a day that my son will never ever forget. He was a great guy. He was a great guy, and I wish you would have gotten to know him because you would have loved him. Six foot seven, three hundred thirty pounds. WWF, WWF, or WWE Hall of Famer, two thousand sixteen. He was very close to to Kurt. You know, Kurt loved to hunt too. They were they were really close, and if you I, you know, it's kind of a sad story because he got in a really pretty severe motorcycle wreck in two thousand two. I'm guessing got on a lot of pain pills as a result. Probably did a little too much drinking. Kurt died in 2003. I know that hit him hard, as it did a lot of people. But I think I, I think the cumulative effect of all of that and his career kind of coming to an end was just too much for him. But he was – I wish you would have gotten to know him. He was a great, great guy. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about the match. It goes uh, 10 minutes and 8 seconds. The finish involves VK Wall Street coming to ringside with a chain, and when he's going to go to use it, Duggan's going to beat him to the punch. But he drops the chain. Rogers picks it up and uses it, and uh, it gets half a star. And Meltzer would say that Big Bubba had a hard way juice in the forehead, but it wasn't acknowledged on TV. Was there a, a strict no-blood policy at this point? <laughs> It was shoot, you know, if it happened hard way, if it was an accident, something happened in the ring, it was shoot around it the best you could, but you know, don't do anything stupid like just taking crowd shots, you know, to completely avoid it, but don't, you know, don't exacerbate it by overshooting it. You know, I hate to be dismissive, but does it feel like to you in hindsight? The big Bubba Rogers and, and VK wall street and Jim Duggan here in late 95, do they feel out of place in their presentation? I'm not saying that they weren't capable performers, but it does just feel like warmed over creative and it doesn't feel, I don't know. It's just hard to imagine. We're six months away from the fucking NWO here. No, it was, I mean, it's, you're absolutely right. You know, this, this storyline, this presentation, this angle was about five years past this prime. No, no mistake in it. This was a, a recycled reheated, you know, WWF like esque 
kind of angle storyline match that, that you would have expected to see in, you know, 1989 or 1990. Next up is something way out of left field and way ahead of its time. Bull and Akira Hokuto are going to beat Mayumi Ozaki and Cutie Suzuki in nine minutes and 16 seconds. There's a guillotine leg drop off the top rope for the finish where Nakano is going to get the win. It's a very, very, very good match. Mike today is going to join Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone as an announcer, and he's going to do his best to explain everything that we're seeing here in the backstory as, as well. We can, and at the end of the match, they've even won Bobby Heenan over who's saying that these women were better than the greats like Penny Banner. And he lists a bunch of other old wrestlers, but still a four-star match here with guys or, or, or ladies that most of the guys watching this would have had no prior experience with, but just a damn good wrestling match. And I think this is one of the things that sort of set the WWF apart. They were all character. You showed that you could do character before with Bubba Duggan and, and wall street, even though it wasn't necessarily great, but now man, we're back to hard hitting badass action. And this is one of maybe if not the best match of the show. Isn't it interesting when you go back and watch this? I mean, you and I both agree on the, the big Bubba Rogers hacksaw Jim Duggan match and the wall street involvement and the finish, everything about it was 1989, 1990, maybe 91 at best. And then following up, by the way, a classic flair promo in between, but following that up now we've got, you know, welcome to the future. Welcome to, by the way, 2019. That's how far ahead of time this match was. In, in terms of it being pre presented to, you know, a domestic U.S. audience. And this is, you know, the one thing, and I'm not trying to put myself over because not all of this stuff was my idea, but I set the table for this kind of thing for sure. You know, people are excited when they see great Japanese matches today, and it's kind of like it feels very, you know, 2019, 2020 kind of a vibe to it. We were doing it in 1995. We opened the door to, to introduce some of the top international talent from around the world on a domestic U.S. platform. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of, by the way. And this match is a perfect example of that. It was, it was great. It was fun to watch. Really outstanding. Uh, the next match is also going to be great. It's for the U.S. title. Kitsuki Sasaki is going to take on Chris Benoit. On the November 13th episode of Nitro, Benoit would pin him, as we talked about earlier, uh, but it was non-title. Uh, because Sasaki had not yet won the U S title from sting, but he would. And when he does, we get a rematch here. Now, Chris Benoit, who already holds a win over him, gets the challenge for the belt. The live crowd doesn't know anything about the Japanese performer. So there's not a ton of heat from the crowd, but very, very good technical wrestling here. Even though Meltzer would be critical of the announcing and say they were totally out to lunch here. Lots of impressive stuff, particularly the Benoit rolling German suplex at the end. And Meltzer would call it the stiffest match on the show and gave it three and a quarter stars. I, I think I still probably like the women's match more, but this is a, a really, really good match to follow it up with. I think the women's match probably felt a little more unique. I mean, it really, really was unique. Your point, you know, your point was a good one in that it was... Uh, you know, the, the women in that match were strong, strong characters, but also great action. This was more of a traditional kind of a, you know, strong style Japanese match between two guys who had a lot of experience in that area. 
you know, Katsuki Sasaki started with, I think it was Japan Pro Wrestling in 1986. And, you know, he had, he had a lot of, a lot of experience by the time he came to us in 1995. Benoit obviously spent a ton of time in Japan and was great at this style of, of a match. So when when I saw this one on the card, I knew it was going to be a great one. But by the way, we skipped over, if you go back and watch this pay-per-view and I, again, I'm not shilling because I don't work there. I'm never going to work there again. I promise you that. But still, the WWE Network is a great value. And it's a, more than anything, it's a great opportunity to go back and see some of the most classic wrestling, not only from WCW, but from a lot of other different territories and, and smaller organizations before the big you know, change in, in, in sports entertainment took place. But go back and watch this pay-per-view for no other reason than the interview that Jimmy Hart and Lex Luger did with me, Gene Okerlund, that preceded this Benoit Kensuke Sasaki match. <laughs> Jimmy Hart is on fire, right? He's he, he's at his most falsetto peak, cutting his promo, and Lex Luger goes to give him a high five. And just as Luger's raising his hand, Jimmy turns around and mugs to the audience. And Luger, rather than acknowledging that Jimmy's not looking, leaves his hand up above Gene Okerlund's head, waiting for Jimmy to high-five him. its I don't know why it struck me as so funny, but it's one of the things that makes live TV so much fun. Go back and take a look at that. Maybe you'll get a kick out of it. I know I did. Right, let's keep it moving. Let's talk about the match. I guess before we, we talk about the Lex Luger Savage match, we should mention that Randy beat Lex at Halloween Havoc after Luger collided with Jimmy Hart on the apron. Later that night, Luger turned on Savage and Hulk after Hart turned on Hogan. Then Luger would sort of join the Dungeon of Doom and resume his rivalry with Savage. On the November 13th episode of Nitro, Luger and Savage would collide again. Uh, when uh, Luger would attack Savage after he's beating Ming, leading to a rematch between Luger and, and Savage here at the pay-per-view. So they don't spend a ton of time, which I guess makes sense because in real life, Randy is injured, even though Hogan said he's not. They go five minutes and 28 seconds. Luger gets the win with a step over arm lock. That's real life. Uh, it appeared on, this is what Meltzer wrote. It appeared on television from the announcers that it was a submission finish but the idea they were supposed to get across was that the referee stopped the match and that Savage actually never submitted to the move because, well, top baby faces don't submit. Savage, whose left arm was badly bandaged, used the elbow off the top early, but Jimmy had the ref distracted. Luger made a comeback and used the torture rack on the floor and then threw Savage in and made him submit. And he kept the hold on as Hart was urging him to hurt Savage, but Sting comes out and talks Luger into breaking the hold. So star and a quarter and the storyline here is Savage has a hurt arm because in real life, Savage has a hurt arm. Even though we started the pay-per-view with Hulk Hogan saying it was all a swerve and Savage does not have a hurt arm. What the fuck is this? By the way, <clears throat> I got a, you know, that last week Hulk had a surgery on his back. Yes. God, I hope he doesn't get pissed off at me for sharing this, but he has, I think it was Tuesday. He has surgery, right? I left him alone Wednesday because I figured he'd be recovering. I called him Thursday. Yeah, he was feeling pretty good. You know, I could tell he was he was fatigued. He was 
you know, I guess the way you would feel after you've been in a surgery for 10 hours. He sent me a picture of the hardware in his back before and after picture. First of all, the before picture was, I, I, you know, pretty close to him. I've known his back is in really, really bad shape. But when he sent me a picture, the before picture of the surgery and, and his tailbone and, and how fucked up his back was, I was shocked. I mean, I was shocked. And then he sent me an after picture with all of the hardware. He has got more metal in his back, in his lower back, than I have on the front end of my Mercedes. It is unbelievable the amount of hardware he's got in his back. And he sent me another picture the day after. He was sitting up. He must have been sitting up in bed, and, and it's because he's still in the hospital. He's going to be in the hospital for another few more days. And the incision that looks like it goes from the top of the crack of his ass up to his shoulder blades is unbelievable. And it just reminded me of a cover. And I didn't say this to him yet. I'm going to wait till he's home and feeling better and can joke around a little bit. But it's like, brother, if you were to come up with something other than that, fuck, <laughs> that fucking leg drop, you know, a sleeper, he'd still be working today. <laughs> he'd still be putting people to sleep. But, man, it was it was horrendous. Anyway, sidetrack. Sorry, tangent. He actually posted a picture of the screws and bolts and all that on social. And oh, I, I didn't know that. I didn't see that. Yeah, he said this is the uh, this is what just came out of my back. This is my old hardware or whatever. And I joked with somebody that I should text him and see if I could get it. And they're like, "What the fuck would you want that for?" I'm like, "It's the ultimate Hulkamania collectible, brother." Of course, I'm joking. But uh, anytime, I'm not. Oh fuck, that's a little that's a little Charles Robinson. I told you that Charles Robinson still has Ric Flair's hair in a Ziploc bag, right? No, dude, I'd put that in one of those shadow, I'd have the things, you know, clean, sanitized. I may even have it gold plated or bronze plated. I'd put it in one of those like really cool shadow boxes. You know what I mean by a shadow box? Yeah. It's like, yeah, like, like, you know, look like a museum kind of collectible in a glass frame and auction that bitch off. That's a couple house payments. You know what? They used to have like at Hobby Lobby, you could display like all the different nautical knots and people would hang that in like their beach house. Well, this would be the whole yeah. conversion. And what we could do is we could, I can't believe we're really talking about this. But we could do like two types of, uh, of, of matting around inside the frame. We could do a yellow one and a red one. And then at the bottom in gold or brass, whatever, we could have a little plate engraved. These are the 24 millimeter pythons. Whoa. By the way, talk about off tangent. Do you know that I was out to dinner with uh, Bruce Pritchard and his daughter Amber no, Thursday no, night? No, you weren't. Y'all hate each other. Don't you read the internet? Oh, that's right. I forgot. Fuck. Damn it. But anyway, we went out to dinner. Bruce uh, was with his daughter Amber. Uh, Mrs. B and I were out. Lori and I were out. And we met over in a little Italian restaurant right, on, right around the corner from where our corporate apartment was. And Bruce was telling Lori and I that when we leave Florida, we need to come up and visit you. He told me about this. Yeah. And he said, don't just go for like a couple days. You need a couple months. 
like he was describing, you know, I've been to your house. Now it was an afternoon. What are you doing? Drinking, drinking heavily. And I kind of remember it and I kind of don't, but listening to Bruce describe your house, I'm thinking, I said to Laura, I said, you know, it, it stays cold in Wyoming until about March or April. Maybe we should just think about, you know, hanging out with, you know, Conrad and Megan until May or June. You'd be cool with that, wouldn't you? Sure. <laughs> yeah, he's been he's been on this tangent lately on on our something to wrestle podcast where he's trying to convince the listeners that I have a mansion and I have servants' quarters and I have you have elevators. I have. <laughs> what, what what what's wrong with you guys? But yes, we, we you and I joked about doing a, a little uh, a little get together, and and I hope we get to make that happen sooner rather than later. And by the way, you're invited to. Uh, my no holds barred Christmas get together the weekend of the 13th. I know you're not coming, but you and Mrs. B you're welcome. I think Shivani and his crew will be over and you know, Dave Silva and all the fun. folks who run on my work on our podcast together. And we might get a little, uh, Marty and Aaron run in. It could be fun. JR is invited. You never know. Ooh, that could be fun. Let's keep it going. Let's talk about the next match here. Um, before we get to sting and flair, we should tell you at Halloween havoc. Ric Flair turned on Sting during a tag match with uh, Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. Was such Flair. a dirty bastard. He just he uh, he's the worst. Rick you can't Flair. trust him. He'll just disappoint you. <laughs> so we get the new four horsemen now: Flair, Anderson, Pillman, and later Chris Benoit. Of course, Sting would beat Flair on the November thirteenth Nitro. That leads to a rematch. Here we are. Our payoff. Sting beats Ric Flair by submission with the Scorpion in 14 minutes and 30 seconds. Meltzer would write, I don't know what got into Flair, but he was full of the ring energy and vibrancy of the Flair of old, and the match had super heat. It's the same moves as every Flair-Sting match, but both worked very hard, and the heat psychologically and stiffness were there. Sherry Martell, who's still with the promotion, came out with Rob Parker, and they teased that the two would be getting married in the storyline. They didn't interfere and were just brought out to revive their seemingly forgotten storyline. Three and three quarter stars. And, you know, I'm not going to say this is the best Flair Sting match, but it did feel like 1990 once the bell rang. Isn't it funny? You know, people say, how can we all, you know, how many times did we go to Sting and Flair? I'm, I'm, I'm asking that because I don't know the answer. A lot. A lot. Right? Like every time you needed a pop a rating, what would you do? Oh, fuck. We could do this. No, we could do that. Well, what about this? No, that won't work. I know. Sting and Flair. And somebody would inevitably say, oh, God, we just saw one of those last year or six months ago. And then somebody else on the other side of the room would go, yeah, so what? It'll still draw money. And it always does. Or always did. It was amazing. And I, you know, I agree again. I, 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 you know, I call it like I see it. I agree with Dave on this one. This was just another, just when you think you've seen every Sting Flair match and it can't possibly be that entertaining. And by the way, you know, Rick would do the same things in almost all of his matches. And guess what? It was always entertaining. <laughs> Ole Anderson used to bitch about that all the time. Every time we'd see, you know, Ric Flair do the, you know, the Ric Flair flop. He just would only Anderson would lose his mind when he would see that. And so would the audience in a good way. So it, it's just one of those classic matchups. It was great. I know that, uh, you know, he's fairly polarizing every now and again, Mr. Jim Cornette recently addressed 
how repetitive some of Flair's matches were and how guys were critical. Of course, Bret Hart being one of the most vocal saying he's a routine man, but Jim would say, well, every Bret Hart comeback was the same way. Russian leg sweep, elbow off the second rope, blah, blah, blah. But he said the reason Flair did all of his same shit, it was never the same match, but a lot of the same spots where those were the things in his repertoire that fans had grown to expect. And if you ever ask Flair about that, he would tell you that when he was a kid, if, if he saw his favorite wrestler, not do the upside flip over in the corner, Ray Stevens, he was disappointed when he went to the matches, he wanted to see Ray and he wanted to see that bump. And if he didn't do it, he felt like he got cheated. So therefore he never hit a move off the top rope or almost never. It was always the slam off. And it was always the flare flop. Once he got a little older and he routinely did the flip in the corner because he thought, Hey, if you bought a ticket to see Ric Flair, I need to show him the Ric Flair shit, which to Rick would be like, if you go to an Elvis concert and he just wants to play his new shit. No, you got to play the shit that made him an Elvis fan to begin with. So I understand the criticism, but I also understand from Rick's perspective as a fan, you want to give people their money's worth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, okay. oh, see, this is, this is where I start to get a little, a little aggravated, a little intense because people always feel the need to be critical. They just need to bitch. They just need to whine. They need to be complaining. They need to tear somebody down. And and look, I, I respect Jim Cornette. I really do. I think Jim is, you know, polarizing as he may be, you know, crazy shit that he may say, whatever. It's his choice. I don't really care. But it does have a pretty good vibe on the on the business, right? Yeah. I mean, and he is entertaining as hell. You can't deny that. Nobody can. If they do, they're not being honest with themselves. But Rick was Rick is his approach was absolutely correct. People loved it. His he's built the look at him. He's in his seventies and he's he's in he's I think in a way he's more of an icon now than he's ever been. No, I agree. Thanks to hip hop and pop culture, he's a bigger star than ever before. No, and thanks to everything that he's done for the last 30 years of his career that led him up to that point. Sure. Because all of those people, you know, those all that hip hop community, you know, that that put him on that pedestal and, and helped put him over, grew up watching him. Christ, I almost got in a fight with Hootie, <laughs> Hootie the Blowfish one night in a bar in Charlotte because he got sucked into you know, the storyline that Rick and I had going on at the time. I mean, that, that audience, that African-American audience, the black audience, the hip hop audience, you know, the, the, the wrestling audience in general, white, black, purple, whatever, have grown up for generations watching Ric Flair and they put him on a pedestal. And yeah, now he's, you know, he's, he's got some love from, you know, the hip hop, you know, community and all that kind of stuff, but it's because Ric Flair has entertained so many people for so long, the way Ric Flair knew how to entertain people for so long. And I don't give two shits what Jim Cornette or Eric Bischoff or Ole Anderson or Conrad Thompson has to say about that. It worked. The proof is the, the proof is right in front of us. He's 74 years old. He's more over now than he's ever been. There's a weird way. We've got to show the action from, Picture in a picture in a picture. So in trying to show you everything, I felt like at different times you saw nothing at all. Uh, on our way here, of course, the backstory, we should remind you 
the giant Hulk Hogan, Halloween Havoc, the undead Paul White meets a friend in hell <laughs> named the Yeti. They take turns butt fucking Hulk Hogan. There's a DQ, but that goddamn weasel Jimmy Hart had made it to where if he lost by DQ, he still lost the belt. So there you go. Giants awarded the title. Nick Lambros says, that's bullshit. We're not honoring that. In fact, we're just going to hold it up. We're going to do a battle Royal. And what do you know? The man with the hurt arm himself. I mean, it's not hurt brother. Randy Savage gets the win 29 minutes, 40 seconds. It's his first WCW world title. Was anybody else ever considered or was this always in your mind? Randy's night. No, that was the plan. It was, it was the plan. We're trying to get Randy over. We, we get it down to six guys, Savage, Luger, Sting, Hogan, the giant, and one man gang. Of course, one man gangs here just because you need another giant, but those really are the top stars in the promotion. It winds up with sting and Luger working together, double teaming the giant. And then Hogan then dumped all three over the top rope and was pulled under the bottom rope by the giant Hogan, then slammed the giant. And while the cameras on Hogan. Savage must have dumped gang. And before we could see anything, Savage is announced as the world champ, but Hogan's going to complain. He never went over the top and he's booed like crazy for doing so. And he goes to the crowd and asks them to tell Savage and the ref that he'd gone under the bottom rope and not over the top rope. But a lot of the crowd is screaming. No, uh, the battle Royal, which Meltzer would say got good reviews live. He says on television with three rings, three pictures and three announcing teams. The first 15 minutes were like watching test patterns. It was horrible television. Although it appeared to be a lot of the guys working hard, the stretcher angle with Scott Armstrong during the battle Royal. They also did the angle where Hawk tried to save Sasaki from being eliminated. Although both wound up eliminated and it was brought up that they are a tag team partners in Japan. It gets one star, but you saw it back for the first time in a long time. It was kind of complicated to keep up three pictures inside the big picture cluster fuck that's what it was it was horrible it was a good idea paper you said it great idea paper it was exciting to talk about three different announced teams three different rings 60 guys 20 guys i mean it was a it was a promoter's delight because it just felt like such a great spectacle. You almost had to watch it to see how it was going to turn out. But, oh, man, watching it back, it was just like, ugh. It was tough. Yep, it sucked. Lots of uh, talent here. The men in the Battle Royal, in order, or not in order. Arn Anderson, Alex Wright, Brian Nobbs, uh, Barrio brother Ricky, David Taylor, Scott Armstrong, Sting, Joey Maggs, Pez Watley, Disco Inferno, Ming, Stevie Ray, Mark Starr, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, James Earl Wright, Lex Luger, Eddie Guerrero, Cobra, Giant, Paul Orndorff, Chris Canyon, Bobby Walker, Bobby Eaton, Chris Benoit, Randy Savage, Marcus Bagwell, and the Yeti, who's wearing the great ninja outfit or giant ninja outfit rather than the toilet paper uh, Yeti costume. Kurosawa, Hugh Morris, Mike Winter, Steve Armstrong, Hawk, Scotty Riggs, Johnny B. Bad, Steve Regal, uh, Big Train Bart, which is the former Black Bart, Zodiac, VK Wall Street, Dallas Page, Scott Norton, Brian Pillman, Craig Pittman, One Man Gang, Super Assassins, which are Warlord and Barbarian under hoods, 
Bunkhouse Buck, Kensuke Sasaki, Dick Slater. It's a name I didn't expect. Max Muscle, Shark, Barrio Brother Fidel, Jerry Sachs, Kevin Sullivan, Dave Sullivan, Jim Duggan, Booker T, Bubba Rogers, Flair, and Hogan. Jesus Christ, that's a lot of fucking guys. Chris, you and I could run three different wrestling promotions with that talent roster. Dude, this is... <laughs> I mean, at this point, I guess it's not your typical wrestling business anymore because most of these guys, I guess all of them, are on guaranteed contracts. You're paying them anyway, so might as well just fucking get them there. The only extra added expense is the travel and, and hotel, but how do you how do you age into match like this with 60 guys? I mean, you can't be that particular about order of elimination or things like that. Right. How do you, who do you assign to tackle a big monstrosity like this? Well, that would have been up to flair and probably Kevin Sullivan. I mean, that was their job, not mine, but you know, and maybe, you know, this is one of the reasons why to this day, I can't stand gimmick matches. I, I might, I may still be suffering from PTSD after this, this attempt. And again, the idea sounded great on paper. I was pretty enthusiastic about it when we first started talking about it because it just, it felt so big. It felt like such a great spectacle, but again, my inexperience, honestly, um, not to try to sugarcoat it. How do you shoot something like that? And it's why to this day, I can't stand battle Royals. I can't stand them. I can't stand to see 20 guys or 10 guys. I don't even like six bands. Tag teams are about as far as I'll go because it's just the, the, the action of the, you know, just see guys walking around looking for somebody to hit, you know what I mean? Waiting for their cue to get tossed out. It's just, I can't stand them. And this is probably the reason why. And it was just so hard to shoot. There was no way to follow it if you're at home. There was no drama. There was no anticipation. It was just oh, a learning experience. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. But like I said, you know, some you, you try things, right? You, you, sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. This clearly, like you said, worked on paper, but not so much in execution. I feel like the, uh, I don't know, man, just. Is there an athletic commission that you would have to go through in Norfolk to get all of these guys like screened and all that? Cause this feels like, no, okay. Now Baltimore, you would have had to, but not, not Norfolk. Um, talk to me a little bit about the creative. I mean, I know you said this was always designed for Savage, but Hogan getting pulled out from underneath and then sort of protesting. Were you trying to make, I know this doesn't come off this way because he is Hulk Hogan, but if you really isolate some of his actions, when he was the top guy in the heyday of the WWF, or even here, he comes off like a whiny baby face, a chicken shit heel, whatever. There is a heel undertone. Yeah, I agree. You know, I was, you know, I was kind of analyzing this a little bit. And I think Hulk was maybe going through a little bit of a, he was, he was experimenting just a little bit. I think he was tempting the, the heel turn, maybe thinking about it, teasing it just a bit to see how it felt. But this, he, he went too far, you know, and if, and I think if, you know, if Hulk and I were sitting here right now, looking at this and said, okay, brother, if you really want, if you're going to do, if you were in this situation again, and you were going to really try to get yourself over as a baby face. How would you do it differently? And I think 
if we were just sitting here riffing, you know, right now, it would be like, nah, but I should have put him over. I should have congratulated him. Maybe gone a little too far putting him over and let Randy kind of come back and say, oh, whoa, wait a minute, a little patronizing me, bro, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, he, 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 what was I thinking when I watched this? I almost wrote it down. Oh, thou doth protest too much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's exactly, that's how I felt when I was watching that. The next night, by the way, on Nitro, uh, you guys have a, a pretty good gate, I guess, at the time. You're in Salem, Virginia. There's 5,000 fans. The gate's only 27 grand, but you got to remember, we're just barely into the Nitro era. But Hogan's wrestling here. He gets a win on this show over Hugh Morris. Uh, but then Savage does an interview and Hogan comes out to show him the tape of what happened the last night. What, Hey, I didn't go over the top rope brother, but the tape breaks just as that part is supposed to come up. And at that point, the giant shows up and choke slams Savage on the floor. He starts beating on Hogan until sting runs out. Then he has sting up for the choke slam when Hogan makes the save with a chair. And then Hogan gives giant a dozen chair shots, running him off. Uh, later we would see sting and Luger beat Anderson and Pillman. And afterwards, uh, the horsemen are going to come out and destroy Sting and Luger until Hogan makes the save. Uh, and what do you know? He goes after Luger, but Sting stops him from attacking Luger. Luger had been working as a face, but they're doing a tease spot. Uh, so you don't really know. And I think it's, it's sort of interesting that it's not just Hogan. It's also the Luger thing where is he a heel? Is he a baby face? This feels like, and again, we're six months ahead of the NWO. You're experimenting with shades of gray. Yeah. I don't think I really looked at it that way. Although I was trying to, I did believe at that time is probably right about this period of time is when I realized that um, I'm going to have a hard time articulating this. I've been up since four o'clock this morning and drove about 700 miles today. So I'm, I'm a little brain dead, but there was a point in time, and I think it was right around here, where I realized that in in terms of promoting or storylines and, and what you wanted a storyline to accomplish, typically up until this point, you were making statements. I'm going to kick your ass. When I see you at Starcade, I'm going to take your title. I'm going to take your valet. I'm going to take, you know, whatever it is. It, the, the essence of a match, a storyline, a challenge, stakes, whatever you want to call it, was always presented in the form of a statement. I'm going to do this to you. Oh, no, you're not. I'm going to do it to you, right? Kind of really basic shit. And there was a point when I started realizing, and it, I didn't have it nailed here in 95. I was, the ideas were really starting to form in my head about this time. But I realized when it came to TV, at least formatting television, the more you could get the audience to ask questions, the better. Who's going to do what to who? What's going to happen ne next week? What's the outcome of that? You know, however you could create the architecture for your format, your storylines, your angles, whatever it may be that left the audience with more questions than answers, the more likely they were going to be to tune in. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
And I think that's probably what you're seeing here is an experimentation with that. Cause that, this is about the time. And again, keep in mind, this is a year before the NWO. This is a year before who's the third man. And I, I will say this to the day they, you know, plant me in the crowd or barbecue me. That is the single most influential moment in the last 30 years of the wrestling business was that single question. Who's the third man? And of course the follow-up of it being Hulk Hogan in 1996. But when you can get the audience so focused on the question where they're not only asking it of themselves they're asking it of each other, you know, it used to be called water cooler talk before, you know, the internet became so prevalent and social media. But if you can create a story that keeps people wondering and guessing and, and, and motivated to tune in to find out what's going to happen next, you win. And this was, I think, the beginning of that formula, you know, manifesting. Let's go to the uh, Wrestling Observer Reader Poll. They gave it 12.5% thumbs in the middle, 26.1% thumbs down, 61.4% thumbs up. Are you surprised that it's 61 and change up? Oh, I don't know. I never took much stock in any of that stuff. You know, again, it's just, you know, polls are, especially a wrestling observer poll. Uh, I don't want to think about that too much. But, you know, polls tend to take the temperature of like-minded people. Right. You know, and it doesn't matter whether it's politics or whatever it is. You know, people that subscribe to the, to the observer are, you know, like-minded people. They, they read it for a reason. Dave has an opinion. He, you know, they, they like for whatever <laughs> fucked up reason, they, they, they believe in what he writes and his opinion will become their opinion. So if he likes it, they'll like it. If he hates it, they'll hate it. It's just, you know, the way, the way it is. And, and, and again, it's not just, you know, the wrestling observer poll. It's, same, it's like whenever I hear, oh, you know, NBC News poll says this. Well, of course it does. And it's completely, you know, it's antithetical to what a Fox poll is going to say or a Reuters news poll is going to say. So, you know, whoever does the polling kind of controls or influences the outcome of the poll. So I never really held much stock in it. I'm not really sure, you know, thinking back, you know, looking back at this, because it was kind of a, yeah, this wasn't one of my proudest pieces of work <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. So in light of the fact of everything that I just said, I'm rather surprised that, you know, a majority of Dave Meltzer's readers would have rated this as high as they did, but perhaps it was, you know, maybe it was the Japanese matches. Maybe it was the, you know, the Benoit Sasaki match. Maybe it was the women's match. Well, let's Who knows? that though. There was lots of good matches here. The women's match got the most votes for the best match poll, 80 votes there. I would agree. That was the best match. Second best match. I also agree. Flair and sting. Very good. Third place, believe it or not, Johnny B bad and DDP. And then the Benoit match, but those four matches are really, really strong. There was only two matches that weren't that great. Uh, Jim Duggan and Bubba Rogers, most of us would agree, not good. Uh, Lex Luger and Randy Savage, it's kept short. There is a lot of story there, and I understand that they've got to still work the Battle Royal. That one was not maybe the barn burner you expect. 
And the battle Royal sort of was what it was, but as a one-off as a first time we'd ever seen it, not bad. No, not bad at all. Well, what'd you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Thumbs in the middle. I, I think the, inter- the interviews were so bad. It took me out. I mean, that's my thing. You know, when I, I, I probably am a little bit more critical about interviews than I am possibly even about matches sometimes. And I know that's probably not a healthy perspective, but to me, if you keep, it's kind of like, it's like if when Mrs. B and I go into a sushi bar, we order a, a, a fish called Saba, which is mackerel. Now mackerel is a very difficult fish to get right. It, it's pickled, but if you, if you leave it in the pickling solution too long, it gets just too bitter and pickly and, and more than anything else, dry. The texture just isn't quite right. On the other hand, if you go into a sushi bar and you order saba or mackerel and the chef knows what he or she is doing, it's a, it'll, it'll melt in your mouth. So whenever we go into a new sushi bar, the first thing that and, – and by the way, it is one of the hardest cuts of fish to get right. It really, really is tricky. And I've been to sushi, some of the best sushi bars in Japan, and they don't get it right. So it's a really tricky, tricky thing. But that's one of the first things that we always order because we can tell if the sub is not right, everything else is just going to be okay. Do the same thing when we go to Mexican restaurants. We go to a Mexican restaurant. We don't order any food until we taste the salsa. If the salsa is homemade and the salsa is really good and original and you can tell it didn't come out of a jar or out of a can, uh, then you can almost be certain that the rest of the meal is going to be pretty pretty awesome. And I feel the same way about promos in, in wrestling. If the promos are good, eh, it's hard to get me excited about anything else. And that's just me. I realize a lot of other people are way more focused on matches, especially nowadays, you know, because of the influence of so much, you know, the international stuff that's, you know, out in front of us right now. And, you know, the athleticism and the, the you know, the presentation of, uh, of the, the physical aspect of, of our industry now has evolved and progressed so much it's it's actually quite amazing as I watch it today, and I I get that most people, especially today's younger audience, is into that. But for me, my taste it's all about the promos. If if you can make me believe your promo, really believe it, even if your match is just a five or a six, I still dig it. But if your promos suck. And your match is outstanding. I don't really care, but that's just me. Well, and that's why we're listening. Cause we want to hear from just you. And we're going to hear from you for world war three, 1997 next week, which as you remember is one month prior to Eric fucking up the biggest pay-per-view in history over a tanning <laughs> bed. Uh, prick. Uh, on December 2nd, we'll give you a chance to roast Eric. We're going to do hashtag ask Eric anything. And through the rest of December and January, we've already got it mapped out. We'll be talking about Rey Mysterio, Brett's debut in WCW, the time Medusa dumped the title in the trash, Starcade 93 with the incredible main event of Ric Flair, and of course, Big Van Vader, the debut of Thunder, 
the very first episode of thunder. And we know what a shit show that became sold out 1999. And then we're going to do something a little different for one of our episodes. And I haven't even ran this past you, but given the history and how closely you worked with him, not just in WCW, but in TNA as well. At some point in January, we're going to talk about the time that sting finally debuted on Monday night raw. And I know you weren't there for that. So we'll do it. Watch along style, but he's sort of the last holdout from WCW yesteryear to finally show up all these years later. Gosh, for nearly 14 years after the company went down and sting is finally in the WWE, but we appreciate you guys supporting us. Leave us a five-star review. If you think we've earned it, uh, be sure to hit that subscribe button. It's absolutely free. Check out a shirt over at ericbischoff.com. And uh, if you haven't already, follow us on social media at 83 weeks on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, anywhere you enjoy social. And be sure to check us out on Patreon. We're going to be loading up uh, a bit of a shift in the month of December. Uh, we're retooling the entire Patreon now that uh, Eric's had a bit of a change of life, not once, but twice. We're going to have some new ideas coming there. And we'd love to have your feedback on this week's show. On social media, he is Hattie Bischoff. I am Matt Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week and every week right here on Westwood One, Mondays at 6 a.m. It's 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.